The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, Jason. Hello, Joni. Here we are again. We are. This is actually episode number 20. Well, that's monumentous. I know. That means we've been doing this for roughly five months, which is kind of cool. Very cool. Very, very cool. And uh, I hope we've reached a lot of people. I think we have. I think the last uh, Steve looked, there were um, close to 2,500 downloads. That's great. Which means that, you know, we're getting the message out that for friends and family of addicts, there's hope and there's help available. And also for addicts themselves, there, you know, there is a solution. You know, as we've said many times, um, we don't believe that there's anything really wrong with you. You've just made some bad choices. And, you know, that's kind of the message that you guys put across at Narconon, which I think is good. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, my thing is, is this, as long as people get sober, that's really all I care about, regardless of what modality they, what, what, what modality they use. Sorry, I can't talk. Sorry. Right. Um, you know, the important thing is that people get clean and they get sober, they fix their lives and become contributing members of society again. Um, you know, for me, Narconon was that program that did that. And, um, you know, I think our message here is just use what works for you and what has the best chance of getting you clean. And, um, you know, that's what we're doing here. We're trying to put the word out of, you know, what's going on in the world and what people can do, you know, to get clean and to fix their lives and what families can do to help their addicted loved ones. And uh, that's why I'm really excited about the interview you're doing. Uh, with Joanne Peterson. I didn't, do you want to introduce her? Well, I introduced her actually in the interview, but um, just to you know reiterate, um, you said that, uh, well, your parents said actually that when they were going through the, the whole thing with, you know, suspecting you were an addict, not really knowing what to do, that they um, found an organization called uh, Learn to Cope. That's L-E-A-R-N, the digit two, cope and the website is learntocope.org and what it is is a support group for the loved ones of addicts to um, you know offer an ear because as we've said many many times um, friends and families of addicts they feel they don't they don't want to talk to anybody they don't know who to talk to right and um, Joanne um, you know experienced addiction when she was a little girl and her siblings um, had various addictions and then uh, her son became an addict and so she just decided that she would start this group and it's it's really blossomed so let's go ahead and play the interview all right I'm very excited today to have on our podcast a woman who sort of grew up with addiction because some of her family members were addicted when she was a young girl. And then unfortunately, her son became addicted to drugs. And so she formed a group called Learn to Cope. That's L-E-A-R-N, the digit to cope. And the website is learntocope.org. And Learn to Cope is a support group for parents and loved ones who are going through the nightmare of having a loved one addicted to drugs. Please welcome Joanne Peterson. Hi, thank you very much for having me. 
I should mention as we get started that yesterday when Jason and I did our weekly podcast, he mentioned that he credits the fact that his parents found Learn to Cope with the fact that he is today clean and sober, because it was a turning point in his whole addiction history when his parents found Learn to Cope. Oh, that's nice to hear. Jason's a great person, and I'm just really proud of him, and it's it's really nice to hear that. One of the things that Jason's parents said they learned from Learn to Cope was that there's a difference between loving your loved one, child, parent, what have you, and enabling them, and that they learned from Learn to Cope that enabling is not the way to go when you have an addict. Um, well, you know, it, we usually find that a lot of what we we do um, is we want to love our our sons or daughters or spouses to recovery, and that does not work. Um, you know, in my own case, I think um, you know everything. The more I did for my son to do for himself at one point during his addiction, um, really just um, you know it, it prolonged everything and. Um, there's been studies too that, it, you know, if you don't allow them to learn to do, you know, find their recovery, um, you can support it by any means, um, you know, as far as motivation and, and offering to bring them to treatment, um, or even bringing them clothing when they're in treatment, things like that. Um, but just allowing it to continue at home, um, waiting for them to hit a rock bottom a lot of times. We never know where anyone's bottom actually is. <laughs> um, and then, you know, providing, paying their rent or paying for their all their bills or, or you know, just giving them money all the time really doesn't help anybody. It, it, it hurts everybody. Right. So that's the the largest form um, that I've been through, and really that most people go through, and it takes a long time. Um, we almost have to hit our bottom before right um, that will change and and hit our what we call our enough stage. Right. Is that an is that something that you find that's fairly common with the parents that come to you for help? Um, yes, I think it's just the process. I think every parent goes through that, um, and they spend your lives. You know, they get sick, you bring them to the doctor. They fall and scratch their knee, you put Band-Aids on it. Um, you know, parenting is taking care of our children, and when they're sick, um, also taking care of their sickness. But um, addiction is a much different animal. Um, the more we do sometimes, you know, giving them money all the time, that just provides money for them to get more drugs or, you know, allowing them to just, allowing them to stay at home, hoping it's going to go away. When we're giving them money, they have a warm, cozy bed to sleep in and a full refrigerator of food and a television to watch all day. Um, it's not going to go away. It'll just continue and get worse as time goes on. And usually, um, after a while, we realize that on our own, but it's very hard to do. It's it's hard to stop because you, you want to believe everything they say. You want to believe that they're doing better you want to believe that they didn't take your grandmother's necklace, you know, to sell it for something, and and we we become just as sick as they are sometimes. So having peer support is huge because 
once you get that support, um, it's a lot easier hearing it from another parent that, geez, I've been in someone else saying, well, if it was my child, I would never allow that. But when you're hearing it from somebody that's been there, but has also, um, you know, it takes time. It's it's like, you know, sailing through an ocean and suddenly having to change direction. And it's not something that happens overnight. Um, we don't tell people, throw your kids out, don't do this, don't do that. It, everyone finds it in their own time. But what we do is just support each other through it share our own um, circumstances, what we've been through, what has worked for us, what hasn't worked for us. And eventually, with that support um, comes courage, the courage to face it head on and say, look, I'm not going to let you die on my watch. Right. Um, You know, there are treatment centers that you can go to. I can help you go to treatment. I will bring you to treatment, um, but I can't allow drug use in my home especially when you have younger children or you have elderly parents living with you, Um, especially younger children. It's really traumatic for them. And, you know, they become the the entire, you know, as they say in Al-Anon, elephant in the living room. Everyone's just gathered around the elephant and no one else is living their life. That's an, that's an interesting analogy, but I can see that if you have young people and young children in the house, then that can definitely be an issue. You know, I watched some of the videos that you have on YouTube, and a lot of what I listen to the parents say is that when something like this happens, the tendency as a parent is to think, is to internalize it all, not want to talk to people about it, and really not want anybody to know. And I think that that's a large part of what is so valuable about Learn to Cope. Right. Um, And I was that way. I I definitely agree. Um, And I was that way myself in the beginning because, you know, with, with heroin especially, that's just that word alone is traumatic to even think that your daughter or your son could be using that drug. It's just such a dirty, stigmatizing word. Right. Um, and none of us ever imagined that we'd deal with that. And the majority um, of our groups, well, pretty much all of them, they started out with prescription pills that no one really knew what, what it was out there and that it was, you know, getting into the hands of young teens that, you know, might have made that split decision just like they do to text and drive and think they'll be okay or jump off a cliff into shallow water and, you know, think that they're going to be okay. Sometimes they make that decision to try something thinking they'll be okay the very next day. And, you know, we loved and nurtured our children. We might have had them in private schools or cheerleading squads or football, you know, teams and, you know, thought we did everything that we were supposed to, if there were a manual, we tried to follow, and then suddenly they're a heroin addict. Right. So the first thing you do is you blame yourself. You go internal and say, what did I do? Or what didn't I do? Um, What did I not do enough of? Or what did I do that was basically, it's addiction. Yep. (laughs) And it can start from a prescription. It can start from an experiment. It can start with alcohol. Addiction is addiction. Um, But... Heroin addiction has this awful stigma, <clears throat> and many of us never thought we'd ever deal with something like that. So you don't want to tell your friends. You don't want to even tell yourself deep down inside, and you're, you're embarrassed. You're ashamed. You don't want to be judged. 
Right. Uh, you do get judged, by the way. Yeah. But yeah, it's a long process. It, it, there's so much, there's so many legs to it and, and so many different feelings and, you know, people divorce over it. They, they sell off assets to try to afford treatment. And there are still families today that never told family members or friends until the obituary comes out. So, um, you know, it's just stigma is, is a, a huge problem. Um, and if it hadn't happened to my son, I don't know if I ever would have imagined that it would. Um, I, you know, so it, it's just, it's a very lonely place for a family to be. When you're out, you know, you see your friends, I'll, I'll use my own example. Um, it took me a while before I, you know, would start to tell people what was happening. Um, because the year before that, I thought he was going to go to school to be a state police officer. <laughs> and now suddenly, you know, they're a heroin addict. So, <clears throat> you know, you're hearing about all your kids' friends going off to college and this and that, and here you are. You, How do you say, well, my son's now using heroin? You know, it's shocking. It's traumatic. Um, it just rips through the family like, like an earthquake, and there's there's no describing it how hard it is. I I can't even imagine. I mean, we talk about it all the time on the podcast, but I I can't imagine what you have to deal with. Oh, it's it's unbelievable. You know, not only just trying to to motivate someone to treatment, but trying to keep your family together. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I have a cold. Um I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. <laughs> trying to keep your sanity. <laughs> you have to go to work every day. Some of us are, are lawyers, doctors, police officers, judges, teachers, nurses. Um, some of us are stay-at-home moms. Some of us are married. Some of us are divorced. So we come from every walk, but but we're all the same when we deal with this. Right. It's hard to get up and go to work in the morning and put a smile on your face when you're wondering if they're going to overdose today or how am I going to get them into this treatment center? How, am I, how will I afford that treatment center? Or oh, my God, did I lock up my jewelry, you know? So you're you're sitting somewhere physically, but mentally you're somewhere else. Right. That, that's kind of what it's like. Right. One of the things we talked about yesterday, Joanne, is um, that we just think that parents need to be even more involved with their children today and educate them more. Is that something that you think is important? Oh, absolutely. Um, I will say, though, where I was a sibling as a child, I, I don't come from, you know, a perfect um, childhood. My It's in my genetics, which some people don't seem to think about sometimes. Um, I believe that it's a genetic condition. Um, do I think it would have happened to my son without OxyContin? No, I don't. I think he would be fine today. I don't think he would have would have ended up, you know, where he did, um, which, by the way, he's very long-term, clean and sober, has a wonderful life today. But um, That's awesome. I I'm did really it. glad to hear that. Thank you. I should have said that from <laughs> it's the okay. get-go. <laughs> um, but, you know, I thought because I dealt with addiction in my family, um, I lost my brother six years ago. He battled it his whole life. Um it wasn't heroin, but it was alcohol and um, like benzodiazepines and cocaine. My sister was a severe alcoholic, um, but she also had schizophrenia. So, 
you know, I thought growing up as a kid, knowing all of this, to stay away from this, I did educate my son a lot about addiction. And I actually, at one point, after I found out what was happening, thought maybe I educated him too much. I was wrong. I didn't. But um, I do believe that it needs to not only be parents talking to their kids about the, the really dangerous drugs that are out there today, far more dangerous than anything we ever dealt with as adolescents, but educating kids in elementary schools in science class about about addiction. They don't have to tell them about what drugs are out there and this is what this one uses and that one uses. What they need to start telling them, teaching them from a science perspective is you can, you know, your brain is, is something that you can injure for the rest of its life. And they need to see the reality. They need to know that chemicals put in your body can actually hurt their brain and use that approach. And maybe we'll be able to turn the tide on this someday if we start getting at it from 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 the beginning before they are confronted. Not if, but when. Um, it's just... And also... Parents that have athletes that get hurt when they go to an emergency room, ask questions. What is that? Is it addictive? Is it an opiate? Um, do they need to have a full bottle of that medication? Do they only take a few, you know, if they're in terrible pain from a broken ankle, maybe just two days of that pain medication, and then should I switch to Motrin? And we see that happen a lot where there's an injury and someone's put on some really powerful opiates and they don't even know what it is. Right. And they don't and they, they start taking it every four hours and the next thing you know they're Right and they don't know they don't know yeah, they don't know how addictive it is. And if they have that genetic piece and ways that it can happen, there's so many w- different ways that people need to be educated. Um sadly here in Massachusetts we're putting Narcan in schools because kids overdose in the schools. Right. So if That's, we have to give out yeah. Narcan, I think it's time to start teaching them why. And I agree. And they know a lot more than we think they do. Television, social media, um, we're, we're not doing them any justice by not educating them with the facts. Well, exactly, because I think sometimes we think that, oh, we're doing right when we shelter our kids from something that's maybe unpleasant. But if it exists and it's something that they're going to come into contact with, where would we rather they hear about it, from the kids at school or from the parents? Exactly, exactly. And that's... You know, I think that's the way we all need to, to start thinking. And, and you know, it's hard to imagine that this could happen to your son or daughter. It really is. But I can tell you, if you ever walked into one of our meetings, you'd be shocked. It's just, you know, it looks like a PTA meeting. It's not what people think. It's not, oh, they were terrible parents. They were probably partying and drinking with their kids all their lives. That's not what it is. That's not what it is. We're, we're, this is our ex generation here. We've got pills everywhere. Yep. Everywhere. I mean, you can't even, even if you haven't been affected by this personally, all you have to do is call somebody to come and renovate your house. That person might be in your medicine cabinets looking for pills. I mean, there are people addicted to these pills everywhere. Yep. And we've had cases, one of our duties, where a real estate agent was going house to house, going through medicine cabinets. So everybody needs to be educated at this point. Right. We had another case in Plymouth, Massachusetts, where there was a juror 
that was actually on a jury and overdosed in the courtroom. And one of our learned to cope, there's it's there's a news article about it. One of our learned to cope parents just happened to be there, raised her hand and said, "I have Narcan." He was on the jury. Wow. So you know, it's not just kids. It's you know, people thirties, forties, fifties that get injured at work, yep. or that have a surgery that are put on these heavy opiates. And and some people, if they have that genetic component, um, opiates sometimes. People take them and, and they hate them. They make them sick. But there might be someone else that takes them and says, wow, this feels really good. Yep. And, you know, you just, it's like a loaded gun. You have to treat it like it's a loaded gun. Right. Jason actually mentioned that he went to one of the meetings down where his parents are down in uh, Boca. And that it was exactly what you said. You know, it was people that he knew. And it's, it's. You know, we talk about this over and over and over again. You know, I think sometimes people out there think it's just the, you know, the homeless guy in rags down in the Mm -hmm. slums of the city, and it's not the case. It's happening all across the country to every educational level, every literacy level, every economic level. It's, It's an epidemic right now. It really is. It really is, and it has been for a very long time. Um, we've been out there almost, what, what, what are we on, our 13th year? Yes. And, you know, there's something I always say, and, and I <clears throat> I will never, ever stop, is it all began with one pharmaceutical company from Connecticut that mismarketed 80 milligram OxyContins out into the unknowing public. They were indi- indicted for it. And, um, Purdue, right? Purdue criminally Pharma. charged. Purdue Pharma, exactly. And um, all they got was a fine and some probation time, the three executives. And the owners of that company were on the cover of four a year ago, and they're worth $14 billion now, and there's a good reason for it. Yeah, they're getting rich off of, off so, of people getting, you know, becoming addicted. That's the bottom line. Off the, off the backs of many deaths. So now, just this last two weeks within our office, we've lost five kids between the ages of 21 and 30. Oh. I mean, we are constantly dealing with obituaries in this office. It's, we're dealing with it right now. It's just really awful to see these people that probably would have had very different lives if it wasn't for that crime, and I feel that truly in my heart, and I'll never stop saying yep. it. I, I completely agree, and we'll keep repeating it on the podcast as well. It all started with Purdue Pharma. It all started with, um, I believe it was a doctor who came out and said it's not addictive, which is an is a bald-faced lie. Right. Opiates are addictive, and if mm-hmm. you think otherwise, you are dreaming. Right. They, they literally told the doctors um, that it was safe for moderate pain when it was really only ever intended for chronic end-of-life pain or, you know, yeah, people really chronic yeah. pain. Right, right. And that's not what happened. And then when you took the time release off of it and crushed it, you know, it was just like pure heroin. Right. Wow. I noticed, by the way... That's what the black market got a hold of. Yeah. I noticed, by the way, that your organization got a recognition by the city of Boston... Oh, yes. Yep. <laughs> Just recently. Well done. I, yeah. I went to your Facebook page. By the way, anybody listening, if you want to contact the organization, you go to learn the digit two cope.org and their phone number is 508 
This is this is your phone number, isn't it? Oh, it's the office. Okay. 508-738-5148. 508-738-5148 if you would like to contact the group. So you you said your son started on Oxycontin. Did he have an injury? Is that how he got started? No. No, he uh, had just graduated high school that year. And um, there was a parent in town that, you know, was allowing kids to go there and, and drink and party. And um, unfortunately, one night when he was too lazy to buy more beer, he threw down a bunch of crushed up pills wow. to his son and my son and four other boys. Wow. Yeah. I hope he's been prosecuted. And unfortunately, no, because by the time... See, that's another part of the process is um, it takes a long time before you find out where it began. Um, and usually it's once they're in long-term recovery, then you start f- hearing, you know, the truth. I get it. So it was a very long time. There was really nothing I could do at that point. Um, too much time had passed. And, um, you know, now that I have been so educated on this over so many years, too, is um that man may have at one time been a normal, loving father, um, and then he was prescribed that. And there's probably a reason he lived alone in an apartment and was divorced and not more. He was probably an addict. Right. And, you know, so I understand addiction now, so um, I only hope that someday he got treatment. I don't know. Um, I would never want to see him or talk to him. (laughs) Because he changed our lives forever, but well, I might have time, a few I... things to say. But then, oh yeah, <laughs> what I would want to do, I probably would get arrested for. So I don't probably couldn't do that. Right? No, I understand. <laughs> wow. Right. I it, it was probably actually worked out better that I didn't find out until long afterwards, really, because I probably wouldn't have handled it the way that I should. Right. So, how old is your son now? Now he's thirty-four. Okay. Yeah, but this all started when he was 19, so it's been a long road. <laughs> well, it usually is. You know, uh, yeah. we've interviewed several different addicts on, on the podcast, and it's usually, you know, anywhere from five to ten years before they finally get treatment that helps them to the point where they can become clean and sober. Right. right. Tell me about, if I can change the subject just a little bit, tell me about International Overdose Awareness Day. Is that happening? Well, it's international, so I'm assuming it's happening mm-hmm. everywhere. Are there activities that people should know about? Um, pretty much, yes, all over the country. We've been doing it here for years, and it's just a night. What it always was here, and for me, it was just a night for everybody to honor their loved one that they lost. Um, and there's even one in Situate, Mass. I think it's a sunrise one where, you know, they're going on to the beach at sunrise. So it's just it's just an opportunity for, um, first of all, for awareness, because we're losing so many people in this country, and it's just so unnecessary. Um, but also families that have lost people that they love, and just to have a place to light a candle and listen to some music and and see their picture come up on a screen to honor their life and um I was at one last week it was it was really really hard for me and I haven't lost my son so I don't even know how the others must have felt that did but um it's a way for them all to come together and they've all been through this together lost their kids together and 
you know, they don't want them to be forgotten, and they they all come together, and and now it's become a a national slash international thing. Um, And that's all it should be meant to do, really, is just just honor the lives of the people they lost and the communities honoring how so many people from their communities are lost. Exactly. I guess I was just wondering if it also included... Um, perhaps education uh, about Narcan. And I know I read that you, your group now can carry Narcan and that it's something that if anybody has a friend or relative that's addicted, they should have it because it can save the life. Right. Yes. Um, Yes, we usually do. um, The ones that I've been to or been involved in, there's usually someone that if someone needs Narcan, that they can get it there that evening or even just education about it. Um, so Learn to Cope here, um, my organization, the Department of Public Health here in Massachusetts, made us one of their pilots to be trainers um, and train parents and give parents Narcan at every meeting, and they go home with Narcan. Wow. And we've had, um, since December of 2011, I believe, um, there's been... And that's parents saving their own kids in their house. Joanne, and say that again. So we've had, um, we, we give out Narcan at all our meetings. Yes. And parents can go home with it or siblings or anyone that has a loved one. And uh, we've been giving it out since 2011, and we've had over 120 overdose reversals. And um, and that's parents saving their own kids in the house. Or we've had other people that they've seen, you know, sitting in a car or in a driveway, Um you know, it's just, it's sad that we have to have it, but I'm glad we do. Um, well, it's sad and then that you've saved people... lives with it, and so that that's kind of right. why I wanted to bring it up, is that, you know, anybody listening, if you have a loved one that's addicted, and you have not been successful at getting them into rehab, and you're not really sure what to do, well, you want to have Narcan on hand, because overdose is around the corner if they don't get help. So it's something that I think everybody listening should be aware of. Right. And, you know, it is. It's it, You know, when they used to have Ipecac when a toddler got into poison, right. you know, you'd be able to, to help them. And that this is basically kind of the same thing. It's the same thing as an EpiPen. You know, if someone has a bee allergy and they're stung, you you, you're able to save them, but don't like it. They think, well, why Why should we save them? They're just drug addicts, let them die. And we actually see that in print a lot. People will write comments under stories. And well, I would say that that's a that's a very uneducated really that's a very oh. uneducated comment. That is a very uneducated Absolutely. opinion, and that kind of well, I won't use the bad word, but it makes me angry. <laughs> Let me put it that way mm-hmm. because that's it's just uneducated. You know, the problem is widespread, and you could save a life with it. And I don't right. know that one person, it's its very arrogant to say that one person's life is lesser important than another. That's not acceptable to me. So Absolutely. It's true. It's true. And that, But, you know, stigma, again, um, even with grief, um, grief groups we've noticed over the years, um, many people have tried to just start their own because... When they lose a son or daughter to heroin overdose and they go to a grief group, they're afraid to raise their hand because other people are there because of a car accident or cancer and they feel, you know, if they raise their hand and say it's heroin, that they're afraid of the stigma. 
you know, I, there's been instances where someone will say, well, my, my son didn't do drugs. He, he had cancer. Wrong grief groups. Loss is a loss. So that, um, okay. You know, people can just be safe. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? But there's a lot of stigma and, you know, there's not enough understanding out there as to what happens to a person once they fall into this hole and, and it takes a long time for them to crawl back out if they're lucky to get up, get back out. Right. Okay, so you have groups in Massachusetts because that's where you are and then there are groups in Florida and is it Iowa that I, one started up? Idaho. Idaho. Um, okay. So there was another woman <laughs> and um, she, she came to Massachusetts for our facilitator facilitator training we we have over 200 volunteers um we have 26 groups around the state of massachusetts and a couple of years well more than a couple of years ago i hired somebody to help me develop an actual facilitator training oh good because our meetings are run very methodically they're 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 very very well organized um and the facilitators we have um go through trainings and they're they're all peers so it's not it's not like a clinical thing it's not a professional running the group it's peers and um so i've met people like um jenny from idaho and then um tracy and diane from florida who really wanted to get something going in their areas and so they came here on their own time and went to our trainings um it's not something that, you know, I normally would just pick anybody to do. Usually you, you have to find the right person, somebody that listens well, that doesn't have all the answers because we're really not there to, to, to have the answers. We're just there to support people. Um, and they, they were the kind of fit that do attend a lot of our meetings first before they could actually start their own because it's, it's really not something you can just snap your fingers and do. It takes a lot of work. Right. Um, Tracy and Diane have two very good meetings in Florida. One is in Sunrise, and one is in West Palm. And um, you know, there's parents. I think Jason's parents go to one. I think they go. I, I'm not. They probably. I haven't seen them. I miss them because they used to come all the time in Massachusetts. But I wouldn't be surprised if they've been there. Then now that they live in Florida, so. But if somebody listening in another part of the country wanted to start their own chapter of Learn to Cope, they could just contact you through their website, right? LearnToCope.org. They could. Um, the only thing is, right now we're so, you know, busy here in Massachusetts. It's, it's hard. It would be hard for me to go to them. So um, if they were the right fit, if it was, you know, the right people that would be able to do Well, they could come that, to you, though. They could come to you and experience it. Absolutely. And then, you know, do the training yes. and then presumably be able yes. to go back and start their own group. Because there may, because I know that we've, when we've looked at the, um, the metrics for this podcast, I mean, there are people in China who listen to it. Oh. I'm, I'm not thinking someone from China is going to come, but you know, from other parts of the country. And I think that, you know, I I think that this needs to spread, which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, because I think it's so valuable. Um, the whole concept of what you do needs to spread and needs to get out there. Right. I, I when I did, I didn't know I was starting this years ago. I just needed it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> that's often the way it happens. Yeah. And I guess they've heard other people say is that's what they like about it. It's it's very, it's not corporate, it's just a, a group, but we offer education, we have guest speakers, we have nasal naloxone, 
Um, you know, we have different people running the meeting every week, so it's not just the same person up there every week. And, you know, we're not really... what The people running the meetings are just making sure everyone at the meeting gets to talk or ask questions. I want to ask each other questions. I wanted people to be able to ask other people questions, you know, raise their hand and say, what did you just say? What was that that you were talking about? And rather than, you know, just go there and with your marching orders that you can't cross talk, you can't ask questions, you know, it's, it just needs a place to talk. Right. Just a place to talk. And that's what I needed. And I needed more. I needed information. I was in crisis and, you know, I needed support and I I try to make it everything I needed and didn't have. And, um, you know, we have a family packet that we give out that's everything from A to Z that I needed and didn't have. <laughs> and it's basically support, education, resources, and hope. And if you can provide those four things at every meeting, then you're doing a good job. Say that again. Hope, education. Support. Support and resources. And resources. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think it's fabulous what you've done with this group and that you've grown it. And, you know, I'm sorry it, you know, had to come from adversity, but that happens a lot with very valuable movements. And if there was just, um, just to wrap up, if there was one thing you would want to impart to any parents listening to the podcast, what would that be? Get educated on prescription kids to the doctor for an injury. Ask questions. Learn about what, what it is. Is it a narcotic? Does, do they have to have a narcotic? Also, um, the, the longer you can keep your kids from having their first sip of alcohol, which is not easy because a lot of times they will do it at, you know, ninth, 10th grade. But they say the longer they can be kept from that, the better the chance they won't become an alcoholic or, or addicted. Talk to them about it. Show them the obituaries. Take a couple of weeks buying a newspaper and looking through obituaries and see all the died suddenly at homes of the 18, 19, 20-year-olds that might have had a different life. Um, be careful about sleepovers. Make sure, you know, that they don't have... Um, I mean, I know you're not going to ask the other parents, do you have medicine in your cabinet? <laughs> Make sure you know where they're going. And exactly. It's tough. I mean, parents parents had a hard job to begin with. Now we've got Facebook and cell phones, and, you know, we say the four Cs are really tough, and that's cars, cell phones, and, of course, I'm going to draw a blank now. Computers. <laughs> Computers, thank you. <laughs> and credit cards. And credit cards. Good point. Very good point. Well, I think that that's all great advice. And, you know, it's interesting when you say don't start them out early with alcohol, because I remember my parents giving me my first taste of wine, I think I was 15. And, you know, probably not a good idea. We definitely didn't do that with our boys. Joanne, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. I, I think your organization is a huge asset. I'm going to give the website again, it's learn the digit to cope.org. And the phone number is 508-738-5148. Joanne, thank you so much for talking to us. We're going to keep talking about it. Thank you. It was really nice to talk to you. That's great. Well, you have a great rest of the week. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. So what did you think, Jason? I I, I was just going to say that was a great, great, great interview. And, you know, I'm so glad that Learn to Cope exists. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason being, you know, I think I've said this before, 
you know, I attribute the fact that I got sober to this group because they stopped my parents from, you know, doing certain things with me as far as enabling and, and allowing me to continue my addiction. Right. And so I was actually at the point where I realized, you know, I need to do something here or, you know, I'm going to die. And none of this is going to get better. Exactly. And, uh, you know, my parents, when they went through, uh, you know, everything with me, they didn't know who to turn to. They didn't know who to talk to because I think they're not going to talk to their friends about it because all my other parents' friends, you know, kids were getting married and having kids and had great jobs and all this stuff. And they couldn't just be like, yeah, well, my son's a drug addict. And so the other thing is when families go through this, it's very lonely. And you don't realize how many thousands of other families are going through the same thing. And so don't learn a cope uh, organization. Um, the fact that they have meetings in certain geographical areas is great because families can actually go to these meetings and actually, you know, get in communication with other people going through the exact same thing they're going through and, you know, have sounding boards, get advice, you know, figure out the best way to handle, you know, their loved ones. And they can even do it on the website because there's an online forum. Right. So, so yeah. So even if someone lives in like Texas or California where there doesn't currently exist a learn to cope, you know, in-person organization, there's still a network of people there that are available for any of you listening to help. So you're not alone. And, you know, we've talked many times about how um, parents feel really alone when this happens. I mean, addiction is a lonely thing. I mean, not only is the addict alone and everything, but the family is too. And so, you know, the fact that this group is out there to help all the families out there that are struggling with this, I think it's, I think it's like invaluable. I mean, it's an amazing, amazing thing. Um, and, you know, especially today, August 31st being um, Overdose Awareness Day. That's right. You know, it's, really, it's really important that families start to do something to not only help their family member, but to help themselves get through, you know, the, you know, the awful situations that occur during addiction. Right. And, uh, you know, overdose awareness day, you know, it's a, it's a nationwide and international recognition of the opiate epidemic and all the people that have, you know, unfortunately been lost due to overdoses. Right. And, um, something really important that learn to cope does is they actually train people how to use Narcan. Right. And uh, for those people that are listening that don't know what Narcan is, it's an opiate reversal drug. So if a person's, you know, in the middle of a opiate overdose, the Narcan can be administered quite easily to reverse the effects of it and bring a person basically back to life. And they also offer Narcan, you know, to the public. And I think it's great yeah. because, you know, if I had a loved one addicted to opiates, I'd want some, you know, bystander to be carrying it in case they overdose. Right. And so I think it's just a really, 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 really important thing. And it's a great thing that they're doing. It really, really, truly is. I agree. I agree. Well, we've got more interviews to do, and we're going to keep talking about this message. Um, we've got some really exciting interviews coming up that I'm not going to say anything about until we get a little bit closer. But we're keep that on the mystery. Yes, exactly. But um, you had a busy week. Anything you want to share about your week? Um, it's just, it's been a busy week and I think that's a good thing because, you know, we've got people here at the center working their butts off to get well and to get through their addiction. Right. You know, any week that's busy here is a good week because we're bustling 
you know, with people. I mean, if anyone anyone were to come to the center and just kind of observe what's going on, it's a bustling place. And, you know, there's, you know, various parts of the program being delivered in various parts of the facility and everyone's real busy. And the cool thing that I always thought about that was really interesting with Narconon is that if you come here and view our students, most of them are smiling, happy, and bright, which is like a polar opposite to what I witnessed as a patient uh, in like a psychiatric 12-step facility. Uh, right. Um, most of the people there were like upset, depressed, didn't feel good or whatever. And, you know, that was one of the first things I noticed when I came into Narconon as a student was that, why are all these people so happy? I don't get, <laughs> I don't get this. And, uh, you know, I think it's great that we had a busy week. Uh, we had five people start the program this week. That's awesome. Awesome. And that's five people on the road to recovery and five families who can sleep at night now. That's five lives that you save. And as you say, that's five families that now can sleep at night and not have to worry about their loved ones. I think that's awesome. Yes, ma'am. And we're going to keep doing this because we want it to be 500 people every week. So Absolutely. Get ready, Jason. <laughs> uh, we're ready for it. Okay, cool. So we will talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening and talk to you later, Jason. You got it, Johnny. We'll talk to you later. Okay, good. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 